Hello, this is Paul Bainsfair and this is the IPA podcast. This week I'm talking to Paul Lawson, who runs Lear Burnett's in London, the whole group, and he talks about a number of things, uh, including what it's like to run a big group, uh, but also how times have changed since he came into the industry some 30 years ago. Uh, for those of you who don't know Paul, he's immensely um, amusing character, but also one who has some very, I think, uh, insightful views about our industry and where it's going. So um, I hope you enjoy it. So here I am with Paul Wilson at Leo Burnett HQ. Paul, is it still true that in every Leo Burnett office around the world there's a bowl of green apples? There used to be a bowl of green apples in the London office, uh, but unfortunately we've had to remove those green okay. apples. Why? Uh, because we had to sublet one of our floors in the building, times are tough, austerity measures, and it turned out the company we uh, sublet them to um, was a company called Kaplan, which does foreign language type stuff, and every member of Kaplan used to go and steal those green apples from reception, so we couldn't afford to fund them anymore That's on their five a day, so they no longer exist. <laughs> That's so sad. That's- that's so sad. They've been scrumping your apples. <laughs> they were scrumping. We made it easy for them. But I keep one apple just to remind me in my drawer. Just <laughs> well, I hope you change it every now and then. Every now and then. Every now and then. Great. Well, anyway, um, thanks for agreeing to talk to us. I mean, I think, you know, it's always interesting to hear about how people got into the advertising industry. You, you've been in advertising for, well, how, when did you join the advertising 30 industry? years. 30 years. 30 years. So how did you get into it? Um, I had no idea I wanted to actually get into uh, advertising per se. I wasn't one of these people who always thought I'd want to be a, an ad man one day or had gone to a careers office or anything like that. Uh, I was taking a break after A-levels and had a place to study psychology somewhere, I can't remember where, uh, which I was quite keen to do, but took the year out, I was sick of study, and I did a bit of dispatch riding, uh, and then I joined William Hill Bookmakers, and actually became a trainee manager on the Northwest London circuit uh, and worked there uh, for most of the year. And I actually thought, you know what, this isn't too bad until one day uh, I saw the same guy who'd been coming in week after week and just losing on that sort of fifth bet on the accumulator, eventually losing his fish and chip shop next door. And I thought there must be a better way (laughs) than taking money off these poor people who are hooked on gambling. Um, so I went to the uh, local um, uh, sort of job centre, in fact it wasn't local, there was one down in St Paul's in the city where I was told all the best jobs are if you're a youngster and need something sort of admin just to earn some cash and there was a poster in the window which said media assistant required, £6,000 a year, must have good maths and good English, which I did have. Um, and so I went along and it turned out to be Alan Brady and Marsh, media department, and a guy called Bob Novak interviewed me and said, well, we've been looking for a young, hungry tiger from the street, from the gutter, to really come in and change things up. And I thought, well, okay, I did go to public school, but I won't tell him that. I'll pretend to be young, hungry, and tigerish. You were wearing your dispatch leathers at the time. I was wearing my dispatch leathers, which were really a sort of a repurposed set of uh, backless chaps, <laughs> which normally you wouldn't be able to see, but obviously in a job interview was an issue. <laughs> and um, so I had it all going on, and they explained to me what an advertising agency did. I thought that sounds interesting. Yeah, I'm happy to do the job. And that's how I got in wow. without realising what it was. And that, I mean, for our younger listener, Alan Brady Marsh was a massive agency back then, famous for its. Uh, 
Well, it's, it's showbiz um, proprietor who, who died, in fact, recently. Indeed. Of course, heard that, Peter Marsh. Peter, Peter Marsh, married to one time Pat Phoenix, I think, was it, uh, of Coronation Street. Elsie Tanner. Elsie Tanner. And he had been a thespian, that's why he was such a showman, I think. I, indeed so. Yeah. And we used to have to uh, present. Uh, we had a cross put on the floor with tape when we were presenting to clients, so all positions were sort of uh, planned out up front. There was a full script to be rehearsed and memorised, and when we presented uh, the whiteboards on which were our concepts, we had to wear white gloves to stop finger marking going on. He was basically insane. But again, came up with, this is the age of the train, the wonder of woolies, Nessagin, Nessagin, Nessaginis, you know, Milk has got a lot of bottle, the listening bank, these are all these fantastic campaigns uh, that we did then. And in fact, his partner, a guy called well, Rod Allen, the uh, Allen of the Allen Brady Marsh, um, you would go in to brief him, and he had a piano, and he was the guy who came up and actually sang lots of songs on the, on, on the ads, like, there's the wonder of woolies. That was actually Rod Allen singing. You would go in and brief him, and he'd be at the piano, and as you finished briefing, he said, but could it be something like this? And da-da-da, and off he'd go, tinkling on the piano. He'd move straight, you know, uh, to the song, which was an interesting uh, way to do a baptism. They ran the agency as, as people who know nothing about agencies think agencies are right. Absolutely, absolutely right. They were the definitive uh, But they were successful, and I know because, you know, I was a young man at Sarge's at the time, and uh, we were terrified about them very much. Everyone thought Sarge's were a great, you know, agency but if ever we saw them on this we would we would be really scared and invariably lost indeed and that was that that was the golden age wasn't it when i think clients not abdicated but delegated all responsibility for creative flair and the right sort of brand and marketing strategy to an ad agency and those were the times when an agency could really indulge all of its impulses as to what was absolutely the right solution for that particular client and was given the full head to do do so whereas nowadays everyone is sort of locked down into research and covering their their butts etc by making sure it's sort of t- ticking various sort of hurdles and so that was a time when you know they worked really really well for that because they were a real showman who had a real belief in creating super populist advertising that could connect with great swathes you know of, of the population they did that really really well for a long time yeah i mean you mentioned the golden age and um i, I often wonder you know was it a golden age, or do we are we looking back through rosé tinted spectacles? Uh, but you know, some of the campaigns that came out of that era are still loved today. In fact, young people seem to have a pre sort of nascent awareness of them. They still know about some of these great campaigns. You know, Cabaret Smash, The Martians, and all that kind of stuff was of that era, wasn't it? Uh, absolutely, and I, I think it was a golden age. And I think it was because it was just a simpler time, wasn't it? When you were able to create these gigantic marquee pieces of creativity rather than sort of split that one bucket of creativity across 8,000 different deliverables across multiple platforms. I think that actually erodes the intensity of the creativity you perhaps would get out of any one exercise. And because you're able to sort of, you know, reach everybody with a, you know, with a few sort of advertising slots, you know, you really could connect, you know, at, at the highest and sort of most exciting level. And so I do think it was a real sort of, a real golden age, but based on simplicity, you know, in those days people navigate, I think, their lives more by brands, probably. Brands would almost tell them what to do and how to behave, and now brands are subordinated to sort of wider culture, which is just sort of created by everybody around, participating, sharing, engaging in loads and loads of sort of mini bits of content, so it's far harder to sort of 
throw a sort of a, a net over all of that and sort of capture it all in one intense bag of creativity, I think it's just all been dissipated down. Mm. And I think those slower times and simpler times and less complicated times allow for that golden era to happen. And also, obviously, financially as well. Clients saw the return, and of course, agencies got that. They mm. got their share of the value created, and that's all gone away now, really. Well, it's an interesting point you make because it's also very, I can imagine, seductive for clients to follow the current vogue for dissipating, to, you know, to use the sort of pejorative, because it, it doesn't seem like they're, they're risking so much because mm. they can try things here and try things there for less capital costs. Whereas the, you know, the big campaigns we were talking about, as you already mentioned, that required a commitment to a year or two or three even uh, behind a campaign that you'd put millions of pounds behind and, and sort of clutch your ass and that everything worked. Whereas now you can you get all the feedback, you get all the data, you can change, you can chop, you can, you can, you can move it on. Not always for the right reason. Totally, I think it's exactly, it's exactly like the roulette table, isn't it? Then you used to put it all all in on black, whereas now you can sort of spread your bets over sort of multiple options mm. and actually have the chance to change those bets mid-roll once you've got feedback and data, is how I look at it. And as you say, it just means you just don't get the same level of pop. And I think you still have as much creativity, but the creativity is much more around how to use more cleverly that intersection between content and context. For instance, how to do all those exciting things, you know, using geodemographics and, you know, time of day and all those sorts of things where you can actively tailor-make messages in a more exciting and interesting way. But it's not the same sort of creativity as you and I might describe, you know, the golden age being about, which was creativity in its truest and purest sense, I think, rather than just creative marketing, which is what it's all about today, mm. uh, would be my view. So, you, you probably answered this, but I was, I was going to say to you, you know, in the 30 years, you've you know, you've seen a lot of changes. You've seen a lot of changes in the advertising industry. Uh, you know, apart from the thing we've just been addressing, which is this sort of move towards uh, shorter, shorter term activities uh, and the use of technology, what, what else would you say has changed the most? I think the biggest uh, thing that's impacted us uh, and the saddest thing, although I understand why it actually happened, was the decoupling of media from the creative agency. I started life as a media planner by Alan Brader Marsh, and I sat in the room during the creative briefing, during the creative reviews, and I would bring my views you know, to the party, and creators would be interested in how contextually this might work or not, because it is about the interaction between these two things. And when the whole decoupling thing happened, for all the right value reasons, as far as a client was concerned, and media buying power, and super specialism, and expertise in how to actually deploy those media monies, I think, the communications industry really, really lost something. And it's interesting, nowadays we spend tons and tons and tons of time trying to get more integrated, trying to make much more of a sort of Marcom steering group where you make, you know, clients now judge us on our ability to work well with a roster of agencies, not least the media agency, and show that we're cheap by jowl, even when those media agencies are genuinely, you know, are merely offering up content solutions that will sort of compete against what we're trying to do, whereas we're not necessarily offering up media solutions. So that can be a bit one way in my experience. So I think that's been to the detriment of a truly interesting solution. I think it's that you ended up siloing too much and, and it means the client ends up having to orchestrate you know, those two actors, which is not the same thing as those actors all being part and parcel of the same tribe, as it were, all sort of focused on the same, you know, same goal. And again, when I, I worked at Lowe's as well, uh, Lowhead Spink, and their, their media department were heroes. It was all about how can you how can your media selection, your media buys, 
actually reflect the body language of the brand as much as the actual creativity. And this was under people like Frank Lowe and Jeff Howard Spink who were doing incredible creative things and Weinberg and what have you. But Mike Smallwood, uh, who was the media uh, director at the time, he was an equal partner there. And I thought that was a really interesting thing. One that's been the fourth discipline, you know, the group of people who did the last bit of the presentation once all the interesting stuff had been done. There was a real equality there. I don't think many people really realised that of Lowe's. They thought it was just a creative agency. No, it believed in you know, media as much as anything. And Frank Lowe would talk to all the account handlers about, you know, he'd have a big media ideas in the bath. You know, that was his big thing. He'd often be thinking more about the media side of things and the creative side of things. And I think we really missed that. Yeah. I, I think that is a big thing. And I think as well, I think well, we did touch on it. The whole digital piece as well, for me, there's a lot of Kool-Aid. It's the old Lord Leave Hume thing, isn't it? Which is 50% of what digital people tell you is utter fucking, sorry, is utter shit. And the rest of it is really, really useful stuff. And I think the key thing is for the more old school agencies to have enough of a filter to be able to actually sort of work out which bit is which. But I think there is a lot of fear on the side of the more traditional types because it's the fear of the unknown, the fact that perhaps they might be caught out through not having grown up, you know, in a, in a different world as practitioners. So I think that can get in the way of things when, as we all know, the fundamentals still count, the fundamentals of, you know, powerful targeting, the right sorts of messaging, proper evaluation, and the right complementary you know, mix of sort of you know, communication variables is still what makes the difference. So nothing has really changed, but there's a lot of you know, bullshit flying around that gets in the way of you know, getting to an, a sort of an efficient and sort of strong, strong solution. And I think as well there's a big financial issue, which is our clients aren't giving us any more money, but they're expecting a broader variety of produce. And so we can't just switch off the old school traditional stuff McDonald's still earns £4 for every £1 we put in old school TV, so it's not going to stop doing that. It's deeply, deeply effective. But they also want to be seeing all the other stuff as, you know, that's the way they can engage with their new cohorts of customers who are sort of consuming on different media channels. We now need to do both, but the actual sum of money we're given to do that hasn't changed. So there's immense pressure in terms of our sort of, you know, uh, in terms of our bottom line, which I think is a big issue in terms of keeping people motivated in advertising uh, as well. I think it just gets more and more difficult the less latitude you have, financially speaking. And then you throw in the procurement piece as well, which is just about absolute saving oftentimes. And it really is a very, very difficult competitive environment, I think, uh, for us at the moment. So a couple of things you mentioned. I'm sure you got the Lord Leverhome quite, quite, quite right, but we'll pass over. OK, apologies. Um, I was going to say your, you know, your point about um, context and media planning. I mean, I, I was... I was lucky enough to work, I wouldn't say I worked with uh, the great Steve Jobs, but you know, I'm, I certainly met him and uh, when I was at TBWA we had the, had the business, yeah, still have it in fact. And he, well, even when he was running Apple Corporation uh, you know, and bestriding that great, huge success, he used to ask to see the spot times of any new campaign launch and what programmes his ads were going in. because. He judged it exactly the way you were saying the old Lowe, Howard Spink, media director did, or Frank Lowe did. He would look at it and he'd say, what's this spot here? Yeah. And some media guys would say, oh, it's really good value. He said, but people that buy Apple were not going to be watching a soap opera at four o'clock in the afternoon. Get rid of it. Yeah, and that was his approach. And I think some of that's been lost, certainly. Uh, and it brings me on to the second point that you mentioned also, which is clients. And, you know... Have, they, have the marketing clients that agencies deal with slipped down the, the pecking order, do you think, in their own companies? Is that part of the problem? Is that why they're not as brave or they're not prepared to get behind the agency and, 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 and do some of the things that 
go back to the golden age they used to be persuadable to do? I, I, I think it's circumstance, circumstance that's pushed them back because, you know, in the old days, they were seen as the expert within their organisations and now everybody, everybody in every organisation I now deal with, even if they're not marketing specialists, approaches advertising communications with an open mouth, as, as one often says, uh, rather than an open mind, and they all believe they know what's what. And so that has undermined, I think, you know, the, the, the specialist and expert status of those marketing clients, uh, you know, at the agency side. So I think that's gone away, and I also think there's just a massive um, sort of butt covering thing that goes on um, because everything has to be researched. Because even if it then doesn't work in market, that's not my fault, Mr. Boss, because it went through, it got green lighted in research, it got green lighted in link tests, yeah. you know, and so they are forced more and more into this weird self-fulfilling prophecy where they have yeah. to get stuff through certain sort of benchmarks, which then forces you to create certain types of communication, and it becomes this terrible self-perpetuating sort of downward vicious yeah. spiral. It's all this over-reliance on the, on the, on the, um, the rational, totally. you know, and not, not giving in or recognising the subconscious and the emotional side of what makes things work. Absolutely, which is crazy, given the IPA in particular, you know, I think sort of finally published the Rosetta Stone of communication effectiveness in the long and the short of it. This is something oh, well, that, that for well, all of my 30 years, every single ad man and ad woman has known intuitively and every brilliant client has known intuitively, but has never necessarily had all of the sort of weapons and the data and the charts and the correlations that that provided. Thinkbox did some fantastic stuff, but obviously it was specific to TV. You know, but that... Uh, what. That was finally the Bible had been discovered, and I've never quite understood why every agency hasn't just aggressively exploited that at every occasion possible. Yeah, and, and well, thank you for saying that. I mean, it has, it's probably the most seminal thing that we've done, and it is true, and I do get a lot of feedback uh, that, that agencies have taken it to sometimes difficult clients, sat them down, been through it, and they've seen a conversion literally before their eyes. Uh, so it is doing. A lot of good stuff, but like you, I do, I do wish it had a bigger sort of presence on the, mm. on, the on the on the stage that we all that we all play on, um, and I and I do think that this this whole issue of short term, long term brand building, um, activity working in the short term when you're building a brand is probably probably the best exemplified by McDonald's, a client mm. you look after and mentioned. If you look at, and I often give it as an example, if you look at way the way McDonald's lay out their plan for the year. It's almost as if they've, they've got the long and the short of it and they're applying it. So, and look at the success they have. Uh, absolutely. I wish more people would, would do it. Anyway, let's, let's move on and, and talk about your job now because we've talked a lot about advertising, but you're in charge of the whole range of companies here at Leobinet. Um, do you, I mean, I know you go to sports sponsorship, shopper marketing, uh, you've got a luxury brand business, yeah. haven't you? Um, all the usual social media, direct, digital. Is it one bottom line, or do they all run their companies individually? How do you manage them all? Yeah, um, so, as you say, we've got you know, the advertising agency, Leo Burnett. We've got ARC, which is sort of activation of shopper marketing uh, practice. We had Holler. We bought Holler, which was a social media agency. And then we have um, something which is part of Leo Burnett, but it was really a sort of external marketing wrapper called Atelier, which is all about the luxury uh, sort of style and fashion arena, which has a different type of person in it who's 
has greater sensibilities around the look and feel and treatment ideas rather than necessary sort of old school creative mechanics. They don't let you anywhere near there. I'm not allowed anywhere near there. Yeah, it's all sort of fenced off for me. And lots of images of Kate Moss, which they've, they've laminated just in case they get hold of them. Right. You need to cut that. <laughs> uh, um, so, and, and what we, and briefly, they were sort of working silos, but what we've moved to over the last year or so is recognising most clients want to be able to access a bespoke team of sort of uh, the right specialisms specific to their particular challenges. So more and more and more, we just run um, a, a client called Betson, which is a big sort of Swedish gambling operator, and it's the international brief for them. And that was a combination of people who historically were part of ARC, Leo Burnett, and Holler. Uh, and they came together just as Team Betson, and they just operate as Team Betson. So I think everyone now feels they work for Leo Burnett, but as can put on the other jerseys of a particular specialism. They can look, sort of almost look two ways. One, they're a sort of surround sound communication specialist as part of Leobinet, sort of single operation, and then other times if they need to be, they are super specialist shopper marketers. So yes, we do run it as one PL, we report up as one single figure. So we can you know we can look at all of our creative resource in aggregate and make sure we're investing in the right sorts of places in the right sorts of ways. So but we still hold on to those specialisms. And of course that's now been laddered up. So not only do I look after that here, which is interesting because again, a whole pile of digital people used to working in very, very different ways, finally understanding what perhaps a bunch of old school, traditional, big idea, creative types can bring, not least just to craft. You know, you, you can sit in a meeting with a bunch of people you know, from Hollow who are delivering a whole sort of content piece and a whole pile of video, and all of a sudden you put in an old school TV producer who explains to them the importance of you know, proper casting, proper location recce's, what a quality edit might look like, and how to manage a shoe. And literally, this, the whole sort of quality level just goes through the roof, and you can see the scales falling from their eyes, realizing, oh, that's what expertise is. So again, those things are, are, are working well. Um, but we're now part of something called Pubcoms, which uh, you know, was in the news recently. And so I don't have all the specialisms I necessarily need in this building. And of course, Publicis Group per se has various specialisms. So Publicis has grown up and has its own little sort of direct marketing operation called Chemistry and perhaps a sort of content arm called August. Saatchi and Saatchi does search. You know, we don't have as much of that over here because Hollow is much more in the social media space rather than that sort of aggressive sort of search piece. So what we're doing more and more now is pubcoms, which is an interesting challenge to me, is I'm now working with those other sister companies and where appropriate, and as long as there's no conflict, I'm drawing in that specialist expertise as and when I need it. So for instance on co-op, you know, which we you know retain as a piece of business, you know, they were very keen to have some DM CRM capability. We don't have that. I tried to buy a couple of agencies a few years ago and it never sort of came off. So we've got chemistry involved, and they're now part of Team Cop. And so that's quite a friction-free way of sort of working and accessing what we need for our clients, as our clients demand more and more types of capabilities, but working very, very well together and removing their headache. And that, that wasn't the case before. It, became, it used to be quite hard accessing those sorts of things and sort of sharing freely. That's become a lot easier. And I think one of the key you know, competitive advantages you know, a good agency setup now needs is this ability to be able to sort of collaborate well and form, you know, sort of high-performing uh, teams at sort of a, a sort of strong operating temperature really, really quickly, rather than just coming together as a bunch of experts and then having to sort of fight their way for the sort of place at the top table or coming in with different sort of viewpoints and frameworks. We're getting better and better and better at hitting the ground running with a blended operation, some of which sits in this building, our existing specialisms, uh, and other bits which we draw from the broader pubcoms group, uh, which has sort of been established for the last year or so. So it's a really 
different place. I never would have thought, you know, I'd be sitting in a boardroom with my opposite number from Saatchi and Saatchi and publicists and our production platform and PR people and just thinking about the UK as a whole, you know, and that's what I'm now doing, which is a very, very different place from where I came from, where there'd be absolute direct competitors who we'd never really talked to. We just happened to be owned by the same overall holding group. So that's been quite interesting, mm. I think. And um, you mentioned uh, in, in, in your description of, of how you're set up now, um, the UK, you mentioned Pubcoms, obviously it's a French holding company. We're sitting here the week after, or a bit longer, just over the week after the Brexit vote. Um, it's, been an, it's been an astonishing period, uh, not, notwithstanding the outcome of the vote, and what that might mean, but also the political fallout. Uh, and the speed with which things have changed in front of our eyes. What, what's your take on it? I mean, I'm talking about Brexit primarily. Do you think uh, it's going to have uh, a, a, a sort of detrimental effect on, on the importance of London, shall we say, within Europe in the advertising mm. agency world? Or do you think we'll be able to uh, emerge from this period of uncertainty in, in a strong position as, as, as we currently are or have been? Well, just an aside, before I get on to that, I had Maurice Levy himself over here three weeks before the Brexit vote, uh, and I was just doing a big sort of state of the nation update on, you know, uh, how the UK's failing, and um, I, I deliberately quoted all my numbers in pounds, because I also wanted to sort of rub his nose in it, as a, given he was a fan of, I'm joking, <laughs> I did present everything in pounds, I thought, come on, we've got the pound, let's keep going. Um, but obviously Maurice, when it all happened, sent a big note to the whole network saying, just to be clear to everybody, we stand by our British friends, uh, we'll support you even more, we believe in you, don't worry, which immediately made everybody worry, thinking, shit, was there anything actually to worry about? Why has he sent that note? Anyway, good old Maurice, he, he tried to do the right thing and that, that was all good. Um, I, I think in, 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 broader, in broader industry terms, I do think the Brexit... Thing was deeply, deeply damaging, just because of the impact it will have on the economy through all the uncertainty piece. And if the economy gets dampened, we know that it gets exaggerated, and not in the advertising industry. You know, when they get, when the economy goes up, we got more. When the economy goes goes down, we go down more. I think lots of clients who are relying on sort of buying sales. You know, the first thing that gets cut are our communications. That's the easy discretionary bit, isn't it? That's seen as the easy bit. Whereas, of course, what we all know is you just need, if you're in this for the long term, you need to keep investing in oh, your God, and yeah, rating points. There's a there, chance to actually build them on the cheap. Yeah, just to interrupt you there, I mean, there's another great IPA paper advertising in the downturn, which, again, goes to the data bank, shows all those brands that continue to support. Totally. Do so much better than those that cut for the short term. Well, the most brilliant visual I ever saw was from the IPA years and years ago when I was a media planner, and it was around that... And I think it was just a little piece of video or an ad, and it was a basketball which was just being bounced by hand, and it was making the point just keep bouncing, keep going. Take your hand off, sure, you'll get a few bounces. That's just the sort of the half life, I suppose, of your advertising spend. But once it's stopped, the energy stroke investment required to get that ball going again is immense, and so it is crazy to ever sort of close down your advertising spend during a downturn. This is about long term consistency. So any clients worth their salt should understand that, but nonetheless they will be under their own pressure if their own top line and therefore their bottom lines are under pressure themselves just because of, you know, e econo an economic downturn. And it's just uncertainty which I'm concerned about. But on the, do I think London as a creative centre will be impacted? No. I think if anything else, this gives us a chance to create an even more sort of, you know, three-dimensional, 
you know, sort of fully coloured in, separated nation that is just the heartbeat of where creativity comes from. So, in a weird way, I think it allows us almost to separate out as, uh, as, a, as even more of a centre in a weird way. And I think we should just really sort of put our foot on that and say, this is, if you want the ultimate in creativity, this is the market you come to. And it's sort of carved us out, I suppose, of the great European mass and made us more distinctive, which is exactly what we should be about. You know, in the world of communications, what have you. So, in a weird way, I think this is a chance just to really continue to embellish our reputation as the epicenter of all the creative work. I just think, financially speaking, commercially, there's going to be a little bit of a, a more difficult climb, perhaps, mm. than there would have been had we remained. That's all. But um, so, I'm yeah. feeling very positive about it as a centre because I can't imagine a client who won't want to come and tap into the incredible talent we have here. No, and we're not. We're not just suddenly not going to be as good as we were yesterday, are we? And exactly. I think the clients are going to recognise that. So I would, I would certainly endorse all of that. Um, so look, we're getting, we're getting near the end of our allotted time. Uh, it's been a joy talking to you. Uh, I haven't, I made a mental note of some things I'm going to have to edit out because for those listeners that don't know you, you're often very free with your Anglo-Saxon uh, language. Uh, but it's been a joy. Thank you very much, Paul. And uh, here's to the next one. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Paul Lawson, uh, a wide-ranging conversation. I particularly enjoyed his early recollections of life at Alan Brady and Marsh and creative departments that still had pianos in them. This has been Paul Bainsfair, and this has been the IPA podcast. <laughs>